0: Welcome back to the Marian Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than my usual episodes. I'm going to take you on a solo journey through some of the research on the human gut microbiome. This topic is incredibly important to me, and I'll explain a little bit more about why, but it's also critically important to the topic of health, healthcare health policy and the future of medical research research into chronic diseases the way that we spend money on healthcare and think about prevention versus treatment and it's incredibly important to the topic of public health and social equity. So I'm very excited to speak about this because I have been reading and researching about the microbiome both personally and in an academic setting for nearly 20 years. To start with a little bit about why it's important to me personally, I'll take you back to little baby Marion, who was given many, many courses antibiotics. And antibiotics are, of course, a very important class of drugs. They are, broadly speaking, life-saving. They've prevented billions of infections and death by infection worldwide. And they were given to me as a child with the best of intentions. I had chronic ear infections. And actually, my first ever course of antibiotics I received while being born. Uh, My mom had actually been misdiagnosed with a condition, and so she was given antibiotics while in labor to prevent an infection, which it turns out she wasn't even at risk of acquiring. But so it went that I entered this world having been exposed to a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Why does that matter? Well, it turns out that the birth canal is actually the first location that our gut microbiomes are seeded. And that seeding is a critical component of our lifetime development of immunity, immune tolerance to foods. And it basically just starts the process of training our gut and our immune system about how it can best exist in this world. So that began my life, and I ended up spending most of my childhood taking repeated courses of antibiotics for a variety of things, usually ear infections, sometimes strep throat. And over time, the effects of the antibiotics began to compound upon me. So, of course, the first few times I took them, they didn't really seem to bother me. But then suddenly I became the kind of person who had chronic digestive distress. I put on a lot of weight. I became obese as a child. I started to develop a variety of of um, sort of mental issues. I was very stressed out. I developed depression and anxiety. And all of these things sort of, again, crept up and compounded, didn't necessarily seem to have one root cause. But now, and we'll get into the research on this, it's clear to me how the depletion and destruction of my gut microbiome by using chronically so many courses of antibiotics helped to pave the path that led to my chronic illness through the destruction of the diversity of my onboard gut microbes. So when I was 18, I got pregnant, then I had a baby. She had a dozen anaphylactic food allergies. And for some weird reason, I just got this sense that the destruction of my gut microbiome and the development of her eczema, asthma, and allergies were intimately related. This is now a very well-understood mechanism in the food allergy and microbiome literature. But in 2006, this was a pretty radical idea, and I was just a weirdo who was wandering around the world trying to find anything she could find related to gut health, the microbiome, gut microbes, antibiotic overuse, the development of disease, and how the heck food allergies develop in the first place. And that was not anything that really anyone knew anything about in 2006. So... This topic became critically important to me through my own healing journey. It became critically important to me when it came to understanding the root cause of my daughter's distress and disease and thinking through ways that I might be able to ameliorate it and ultimately heal it and cure it. And it also became a very important topic to me in terms of preventing allergies, eczema, asthma, and autoimmune disease in my subsequent two children, which is something that I have effectively done. So the topic is deeply personal to me. That is my why and you know I've mentioned this in other episodes but in academia a lot of researchers will say it's not research, it's me search. It's no secret that people choose an area of study because it is personally meaningful to them. and the secret's out. That is the case with me. I care about this stuff because it was important to me, it's still important to me. but I also deeply believe that it's important to you to everyone in society and that microbes uh, not just in our gut but on our skin and all around us teach us about how we need to learn to live together and they also really exemplify the truth that we cannot avoid that we are all connected and we're all in this together and there's no such thing as individual healing in isolation we connect to each other we can't avoid that and we need to learn to live with that and heal through that so to that end i want to bring up the topic of one health one health is a concept that everything is connected agricultural health environmental health planetary health animal health and human health are all united under the umbrella term of one health and that is very much highlighted when we talk about the concept of the microbiome let me give you an example The soil, something that we depend on to grow our food and to do a variety of other things, but let's just focus on cultivation for a minute, our soil should be teeming with microbes and those microbes Do all kinds of important work for us when they are living in the soil. They help to fix nitrogen into the soil. They actually play a really important role in the carbon cycle. They help to distribute nutrients into the roots of plants. They also help soil hang on to water. So instead of nitrogen rich water rushing out of the soil and running off into waterways and causing all kinds of downstream negative impacts. On that end, having a rich microbiome in the soil helps the soil hang on to that water and get it into the plants where we want it to go. Additionally, there's a microbiome on our skin, and our skin barriers are protected by healthy microbes that live on us. That protects us when we maybe brush up against something or get a cut, or it can even prevent us from having things like eczema and psoriasis. We actually have microbes living all around us, and to a certain extent, if you have a beneficial cloud of microbes hovering around you, it's going to give you some protection against diseases that can transmit to you in the air, say through aerosols or droplets. We also have microbes living on every single um, immune or mucosal barrier surface. So there's a microbiome in your nose. There's an oral microbiome. And those bacteria, again, create an environment where they have a thriving community, but but they help to make it inhospitable for pathogens. So anytime there's a rich microbiome on the skin, in the nose, in the mouth, we're helping to keep out invaders. Animals on farms have microbiomes and whether or not their microbiome is healthy and robust or depleted can potentially determine whether or not they are susceptible to things like avian flu and whether or not they're going to be spreading that flu and having that flu mutate and transmit to humans. There's also um, important communities in the waterways. So again, zooming out to this one health conversation, a healthy soil microbiome leads to better outcomes for global warming because it improves carbon sequestration. It also improves cultivation and reduces our dependency on synthetic inputs and things like pesticides and herbicides. So a healthy soil microbiome is good for the soil, for the earth and for humans who depend on that food. A healthy human microbiome protects us and makes us more resilient against disease. A healthy animal on the farm microbiome makes that animal healthier and more resilient against disease. It also allows that animal to require fewer courses of antibiotics, which allows us to use fewer antibiotics in our system in general, which helps us prevent antimicrobial-resistant pathogens, which are a threat to our entire civilization. So when we talk about the microbiome, again, it Deeply personal, you can dial it down to the level of the individual. We can work on one person's microbiome, but at the end of the day, this is a global conversation. All of our microbiomes connect my microbiome to yours, our microbiome to animals, animals' microbiomes to the soil, to the water, and to the earth in general. And that is why the microbiome is a critical topic in the One Health conversation and the public health conversation. Okay, so. Now that I've said microbiome about a thousand times, I want to just give a sort of overview definition and I want to establish the role that microbes play in our guts specifically. For the purpose of this introductory talk, and I am going to point everyone to some external sources, many of which I relied upon to compile this talk, I want to just establish the role that microbes are playing in the gut. Hopefully. Right. So there's sort of three general ways that we can live with bacteria and bacteria do predominate the populations in our gut, although inside our gut also reside fungi and viruses. But for the sake of this basic overview, let's focus on bacteria. When we or other animals have a relationship with bacteria, it can kind of fall into three general categories. You can have a pathogenic relationship, which is one that we are very familiar with when it comes to bacteria, because we think of infection. And a pathogenic relationship is one in which the bacteria is getting what it needs and the outcomes that it provides from it getting what it needs harms us, right? We are the host, we receive harm from the bacteria receiving benefits then there's a second kind of relationship and that is called commensalism. In a commensal relationship, the bacteria lives within us and it gets what we need and it gets what it needs and we get what we need and everyone's kind of fine, right? Everyone is inhabiting their role and not necessarily benefiting one another, but just sort of existing. The bacteria exists in there and we're not really impacted by it being there. And there are plenty of bacteria that live inside of us that may just have that kind of commensal relationship. They live there. They feed off of our waste products. Otherwise, we don't really notice them. Then there's maybe the most interesting and most meaningful relationship, and that's a relationship of symbiosis. And a symbiotic relationship is one in which not only do both parties, the onboard microbe and the host, get something from the relationship, but they both benefit. So let's give an example. There are bacteria that live in our guts that feed off of what we consume. And or they might feed off of a downstream byproduct of something that we consume. But let's just use fiber as an example. Gut microbes love fiber. They depend on it, frankly, most of them, okay? So we consume fiber. We've all heard this. Fiber is indigestible, so it just sweeps right through. Well, it doesn't sweep right through, but it is indigestible. It sweeps right through your small intestine and makes its way to your large intestine, where a whole slurry of microbes are so excited for that fiber to have arrived. In response to those microbes consuming that fiber— they're not just eating it up, yum, yum, and then it moves along its way. They eat that fiber and they produce short chain fatty acids, which nourish nourish the lining of our intestines. They also produce things like B-complex vitamins. Some of them can produce vitamin K. Many of them produce neurotransmitters or help us utilize neurotransmitters or help us utilize nutrients from our diet. So That is a symbiotic relationship, one in which the microbes living in our body depend on us because we feed them through our consumption, but we also depend on them. And there is so much research on this right now. We do not know all of the keystone species that we depend on, but there are some that are coming to light. And when we learn about the role that they've played in our gut for who knows how long? I mean, at least thousands of years, right? And microbes are always evolving to some extent. But these microbes are filling critical needs. In our lives, and when you think back to, let's say, a hundred years ago, and you think, "Gosh, like, how did people ever make it during famines? How did they ever survive during that time period where all they had was a crust of bread and a, and a little bowl of soup?" Well, to some extent, the answer is microbes. Right? They had enough onboard microbes that they were able to synthesize these nutrients that they were not getting in abundance from their diet. So that's a symbiotic relationship, and I think it's really important to establish that. Once again, I want to mention that there are so many good books on this topic, and there's a few that I want to recommend right off, uh, right at the jump, right? So the first is a book called Missing Microbes, and it's by Dr. Martin Blazer. Now, this book is almost 10 years old at this point. However, Dr. Blazer is not sleeping on the topic. He was just very early to it, and he was very quick to sound the alarm, which is super exciting and important, and I'm very grateful for his work. He also very recently came out with a documentary called The Invisible Extinction, and if you do nothing else this week, I really hope that you'll watch The Invisible Extinction. It really just dives right into this topic of the human gut microbiome, the role that it plays in our health, and how the microbes in our gut are dying and yes, going extinct to some extent. When some of these keystone species become extinct, there may be no chance to recover them, either in the individual or potentially at a population level. So it's so important that we talk about this topic. And Dr. Blazer works at Rutgers now. He runs the Human Microbiome Project out of Rutgers University. He was formerly at NYU. His work is so important, so incredible. And I'm just very, very grateful. And I've learned so much from him. The second book that I would deeply recommend is called Gut Feelings. It's by Dr. Alessio Fasano. Dr. Dr. Fasano is a hero of mine, and he was the first person to discover zonulin, which is a compound that regulates our intestinal lining and whether or not things can pass through it. If you've heard the buzzword leaky gut, then you're reading about something that has to do with zonulin. The cool thing about Dr. Fasano's work is that he's now a microbiome, celiac disease, and autism researcher, but his research started because he was trying to develop a vaccine for cholera. If you don't know much about cholera, it kills people because they basically just have a permeable gut until they die, right? People have diarrhea until they have it for too long that their body can no longer maintain balance and it can no longer transmit energy and people pass away that way. And it's very scary how quickly it can happen. You can just dehydrate yourself to death very quickly when there's a cholera infection. Well, it turns out as he was doing that research, he discovered that cholera actually hijacks a process that is totally natural and normal to our body. And that's a process of the gut permeating ever so slightly to allow things to pass through. It's a very useful process. It's critical to our survival. We use it all the time. And ideally, it would be a selective permeation, and then it would go back to normal. But when zonulin is chronically elevated and you have chronic permeability, things go wrong. So now Dr. Fasano is a world-renowned, prolific microbiome researcher. I have read everything, basically, he's ever put out. And this book, um, Gut Feelings, it's just very in-depth. It's pretty modern. It came out in 2020, so it has a lot of the most recent research. Not all of it. Obviously, research happens a mile a minute. And that's why I also want to recommend a book that came out in 2022. It's by Dr. Angela Douglas. She's a professor emeritus at Cornell University, and she was actually in the Department of Entomology. So she was studying bugs and predominantly the role that microbes played in Uh, like in the digestive tracts of bugs and whether or not having onboard microbes made them more or less susceptible to carrying infection. Obviously, a critical topic moving forward. And again, it intersects with the topic of global warming because we know that as temperatures rise, we have mosquitoes in more and more places and those mosquitoes can carry illnesses like malaria. However, If you alter their microbiome, are they more or less likely to carry pathogens like malaria? These are the kind of things that Dr. Douglas was examining at Cornell, but she also wrote this book called Microbiomes, a very short introduction, and I can't actually fully describe how thorough this introduction is in, uh, I don't know, it's like under 200 pages. It's this really tiny, quick read, and I just maniacally highlighted the hell out of it because every single page is gold. And she not only goes into the role of the microbiome in human health, she talks about it in soil health, planetary health, and she also does a deep dive into the role that the human microbiome plays in protecting or promoting our defenses against uh, external illnesses. And she has a whole section on COVID-19, which is really interesting. So I would highly recommend that book. It's very important that everyone understands that. Um, There's no such thing as uh, black and white in health conversations, right? We are all individuals and we all live in this kind of messy community of our own lives, our own diets, our own relative stress levels. Our genetics, of course, play a role. Our drug exposures, our environmental exposures. But the reason that I say there's no black and white when it comes to health is that a lot of times, and especially, again, coming out of this pandemic, we have this idea that, Dirty is bad and clean is good. And that is just so not the case. Of course, you don't want to just, you know, touch a public toilet and then go go ahead and eat with your hands. Obviously, none of us want to do that. Definitely wash your hands after using a public restroom. But when it comes to thinking about the microbiome and again, thinking about our guts, For a very long time, we made the mistake. You know, after the discovery of germ theory, we decided we figured it out. Germs are bad. They cause disease. You want to be healthy, you kill all the germs. Well, that's not the case. And so we actually need to learn to live in balance with germs because germs are, generally speaking, good. Generally speaking, they're either commensal or symbiotic. Only once in a while are they pathogenic. And the more bugs that we can learn to live commensally and symbiotically with, the less inclined we are to develop pathogenic, imbalanced, dysbiotic relationships with other bugs. So when you think about the microbiome, the first thing you have to understand is that any narrative that you hear about cleaning out your gut is probably wrong when it comes to health. You don't actually want your gut to be clean. Things like colonics can really disrupt the gut microbiome. Things like enema. Even things like prolonged use of laxatives. All of these things are pushing microbes out of our guts. Now, of course, if you have an overgrowth of something pathogenic, there are conditions where you want to expedite the removal of things. But generally speaking, we're looking to have a robust, diverse community in our guts and also in our soil and on our skin. One funny quote from Dr. Blazer that I like to just drop into this conversation, because again, I think it's so important to kind of have this framing. He writes in his book, without microbes, we could not eat or breathe. Without us, nearly all microbes would do just fine. I just think that's really funny and important because this is a microbes world and we're just living in it. And you either can learn to live with the microbes or you're going to have a rough ride. The microbiome, it has evolved over time, and Dr. Douglas does a really good job in her book of examining this and talking about how before we were multicellular organisms, we were multi-organismal organisms. Our bodies have evolved with microbes. If you've ever heard the term epigenetics, that's actually referring to the relationship between the microbiome, the immune system, and the expression of our genes. Maybe you've heard the term um, genes load the gun, environment pulls the trigger. Well, it's also like genes load the gun and your microbiome pulls the trigger. Different microbes can actually tell your body when to express different genes. And so even if you have a genetic predisposition to certain illnesses, the composition of your gut microbiome can dramatically impact your likelihood of actually expressing those illnesses. Let's take celiac disease as an example. Yes, there are genes that have now been connected to the illness that we call celiac disease, and that's really exciting and important. And to some extent, screening for those genes can give us a window into who may be more likely to develop celiac disease over time, which has incredible public health implications. However, Not every person who has the genes for celiac disease goes on to develop celiac disease. Why is that, right? Some people will have a very healthy, robust, intact gut microbiome that doesn't break down in a way that makes them susceptible to this kind of chronic dysfunction that we see in celiac disease. Other people will develop it as a child for one reason or another, whether just through some genetic expression or through some kind of traumatic event, infection, drug exposure, stress. All of these things are known triggers for autoimmune disease and celiac disease especially. And then other people, including Dr. Blazer's own daughter, he details this in his book, go on to develop celiac disease as an adult after a prolonged infection and a prolonged course of antibiotics. We now know through a variety of research that certain antibiotics can actually shift the gut towards Uh, susceptibility to celiac disease. So that's really important to understand. I talk to a lot of people who are having chronic digestive complaints or even things like migraines or even depression, and I'll say to them, have you considered going gluten-free? And the number one response that I get is, I've never had a problem with gluten before, so that can't be it. I gotta tell you, I ate gluten my whole life until one day I absolutely could not. And I'll never know the exact day that I lost my tolerance to it and it started to totally wreak havoc throughout my body, but it might've been 10 or 20 courses of antibiotics later. Who's to say? Whether or not you've had a problem with gluten in the past and experienced gluten triggering an autoimmune reaction, if you've been through a major life stress or had uh, various courses of antibiotics, certainly back to back, or even a prolonged infection that was eventually resolved by antibiotics, you may now have developed a sensitivity to gluten. Just one example, right? But this is something that's been established in the literature is that someone who's had a chronic infection or an antibiotic therapy or a long-term stressor, it can actually turn on a gene. And change the way that their gut responds, and then ultimately their immune system responds to gluten. So that's important to know. It's also really important, again, to think about, and I mentioned this earlier, that the gut is supposed to be, let's just call it, dirty. You want it to be really full of bugs in there. Diversity is key. Microbiome research is always evolving, and the way that we study it is changing. And I personally, I'm very excited about the next five to 10 years of microbiome research. I think they're going to be critical and pivotal. Pivotal. Because for example, we used to only be able to study the microbiome through excrement, poop, right? You want to know what's in there, you poop it out, you study what comes out. I personally think that is a crude way to study the microbiome. No shade to those doing that. Of course, it's the only way that we've had to do it, but we're now developing technologies where they can actually swallow a tiny sampler that goes in and takes samples while it's inside the body and brings them out. I'm excited about that because I don't necessarily know that what we excrete is a representative sample of what's living inside of us. Maybe we excrete things that we have an abundance of, but you're never gonna see things that live in smaller populations. Maybe we excrete things that, I don't know, our body wanted to get rid of for some reason. They just went through their life cycle that day. They died and and that's why they come out. I don't know if we know 100% what the ratio of what we excrete to what lives in us really is. So in the next five to 10 years, we're going to be learning so much more about who's living inside of us and what they're up to. And that can only benefit us because what we know so far is that many, many, many bacteria Viruses and fungal cells are living inside of us, and they are constantly up to something. They're constantly interacting with us, with what we eat. They interact with our brain. There's a bi-directional relationship, the gut-brain axis, but... What do you think of when you think about the gut, right? Well, probably the first thing you think about is digestion. And for sure, we know that the microbiome is playing a really important role in digestion. So as I mentioned earlier, the microbiome consumes the fiber that we eat. And in response, it produces short-chain fatty acids that are incredibly beneficial to our health. It produces vitamin K that promotes clotting and other critical things throughout our body. And it promotes the B-complex vitamins that are basically important for everything, but you'll just mostly hear them referred to as... They're great for energy and metabolism, right? And just feeling your best. We all need B vitamins for basically every single metabolic function in our body. So they're in- incredibly important. And it's great to get them through diet, but it's not always possible to get them through our diet. And especially if you're eating a plant based diet, you're going to be lacking some of the B complex vitamins. So it's really important to have healthy onboard microbes that can help you with that production and another role that we know that the microbiome plays when it comes to digestion is in digestive Illness. So again, these are observational kind of studies that are looking at the gut microbiomes of people who have digestive diseases, and they correlate that people with certain digestive illnesses have either an overabundance or a lack of microbes that are known to be either beneficial or detrimental, depending on their populations. Now, if you go to PubMed, you can read up a lot about this, but I couldn't possibly pull all of the studies that are establishing a connection between the gut microbiome and digestive illness. But let's just say there are endless amounts of this information out there. And right now we know, according to Dr. Fasano in his book, Gut Feelings, that more than $30 billion is being spent annually in both direct and indirect causes that relate to digestive diseases. And that's just in the West alone, right? Of course, these diseases are growing all over the world, but in the West, we've seen over the last 30 years, a huge drop in gut microbiome diversity and tracking along with that drop has been an exponential rise in a variety of illnesses. The second role that the microbiome is known to play in our health is in neurological health. That includes things like depression, which of course is a big topic. It also includes things like autism, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, and other neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative illnesses. This is critically important for a variety of reasons. Okay, so the first reason is that we want everyone to be healthy and feel their best. And of course, we're all diverse creatures and neurodiversity is a very real and important thing, just like microbial diversity is a very real and important thing. But there is a difference between diversity and disease and dysfunction. And we wanna make sure that we're optimizing for diversity that allows people to thrive and feel their best and express themselves without depending on a kind of diversity that is pointing towards dysfunction and disease. When it comes to things like Parkinson's disease. I think it's pretty obvious that if someone is living a healthy, normal life, they feel good. They're, you know, enjoying day to day, they can function, their body works, right? then they suddenly develop these symptoms that are very troubling. Suddenly their hands don't work. Their memory is failing them. What's going on? They have this pain. They're losing feeling. They go and they get diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. I think we're pretty clear as a society that that's bad, right? That that person developing that neurodegenerative disease is not experiencing their optimal life. And so it's pretty PC and pretty kosher to do the research that helps us understand what's going on in the gut when things take a turn and someone suddenly develops Parkinson's disease. On the flip side of this, we have autism. And autism is actually the fastest growing uh, neurodevelopmental disease that leads to disability in the world, I believe, at least in the United States, and I think across the world. Okay? So it's growing very rapidly. And by the way, it's disproportionately impacting populations that also suffer from things like food insecurity and economic insecurity. That's important. That's a public health concern. And although, again, it's very important to have a wide variety of people in society and to leave a lot of space for diversity and inclusion, we also need to say that if someone is developing autism at a young age, if they're unable to engage with their peers, if they're unable to speak and they're locked into their own body, and increasingly these cases are getting more and more severe, as they grow exponentially uh, the rates across the population it's important that we take a step back and we say okay we know there's a connection between the gut microbiome and the development of autism that's interesting we also know that children with autism disproportionately are impacted by digestive disease i believe the number is something like 92 percent of children with autism have gastrointestinal disorders that tells us something, right? These are not separate issues. It's not as if our brain and our mind is some magical creature that has no relationship to the rest of our body and that kids with autism just also happen to have constipation, diarrhea, IBS, and other related disorders, right? The reason that they have these related disorders is that They are intimately related. When our guts are disrupted, our brains are disrupted. So it's important that we acknowledge and understand the role that the gut microbiome is playing in the development of not just autism and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, but also things like depression and anxiety. Yes, as a public health conversation, depression and anxiety get a lot of attention right now, but they tend to get a lot of attention through a sociologic lens and not so much through a physiologic or microbiological lens. But when you examine the role of the microbiome in these illnesses, it becomes clear that you cannot separate them. So while we talk about things like self-care, compassion, communication, addressing trauma, we also have to talk about diet, environmental stressors, environmental pollutants, drug overuse, and the destruction of our onboard microbes, who we depend on for utilizing nutrients and producing things like serotonin. And Dr. Fasano writes in his book, even though they appear so different in their structure and function, developmentally speaking, the brain and the gastrointestinal system are interrelated. And in fact, many people refer to the gut as the second brain because while our brain governs our nervous system, the gut has its own nervous system. That's the enteric nervous system. So once again, just taking a step back, I want to highlight how the gut microbiome is very personal, and people can work on it personally through things like diet and probiotics and other kinds of bacterial exposures. But there also are these broad sweeping public health implications because it's not just, you know, one teen mom having a baby with food allergies. That's me. It's also millions of people across society suddenly struggling with these neurodegenerative or neurodevelopmental disorders, things like depression, things like chronic digestive disorders. And it's important that we talk about that, that we study the trends, and that we understand how to prevent and ultimately treat these things by restoring our gut microbiome to its healthy, thriving, diverse populations, that it really was evolved and designed to function. Another really important role that the microbiome may be playing in our society right now has to do with the exponential rise in obesity. Now, we live in a society awash with junk food and messaging around how we should eat lots of junk food and stressors and endocrine disruptors and all kinds of things that create this toxic soup that can lead to weight gain and ultimately obesity. That's all true. One of the things that is contributing to this toxic soup is the destruction of the gut microbiome. And there's a few different ways that this occurs. And of course, we're also currently studying this and we're learning more about it. Once again, I wanna establish my own personal buy-in here. I was a normal weight kid who took multiple courses of antibiotics and became an obese kid. Did I suddenly begin binge eating? No. The answer is I really didn't. Did I like to eat junk food? Of course. But I'd be hanging out with my skinny friends, and they were eating junk food too. I wasn't really doing anything that was that different. And if any of you have ever had that friend who's just like naturally thin and they're eating the exact same things as you, you know that the calories in, calories out conversation is not as simple as some people want to make you believe. So here's the thing about calories in calories out. First of all, the microbiome actually helps to determine how many calories are coming in, right? So you you put food in your mouth. Let's let's take a cheeseburger. I have a 1000 calorie cheeseburger. Yum yum yum. Well, some people are going to have that 1000 calorie cheeseburger and what they're going to actually net from that is maybe um, 750 calories, right? Their microbiome is going to process it a certain way and move it right along. Other people, maybe those who have an overabundance of some microbes or a lack of other microbes, are going to have a microbiome that scavenges every single calorie from that cheeseburger. And they're going to get the full thousand. That might not sound like that big of a difference, 250 calories for that one meal. But over time, imagine the compounding effect of that difference. If you're someone whose microbiome is extremely efficient and extremely scavenging, you feel that over time. And so many people currently go to their doctors and say, I'm trying to eat differently, but I just can't help it. Either my hunger is out of control, or I swear I'm eating less, but I'm still not losing weight. If that's you, you are not crazy. Go follow the work of Dr. Robert Lustig. Go follow the work of Dr. Fasano. Follow the work of so many researchers who are connecting the dots between the gut microbiome, our diet, our environments, our endocrine systems, and the manifestations of obesity. It's super duper deeply complex, and that's important. It's important that we're not overly reductive when it comes to things like obesity. Because yes, once again, we have to have a conversation about compassion, diversity, and inclusion. But in that conversation, we have to talk about what is happening in our bodies and whether or not those things are optimal and are benefiting the individual and society at large. Of course, obesity is both an individual and societal problem. It's not that fun to be obese in my personal experience. I didn't really enjoy it. Of course, I made do when I had to, And then my whole life shifted. Now, it's not as if I count calories. It's not as if I'm fighting obesity every day. It's not a battle that I'm waging. My microbiome has completely changed. And downstream from that, my endocrine system has totally changed. And my metabolism has totally changed. And so I kind of eat what I want. I probably eat a more restricted diet than many people because I have certain preferences and I care deeply about what I put into my mouth and into my body. But that being said, I'm not fighting a battle against obesity. I mentioned this in episode one, you know, that's just not my experience. And I know so many people who don't address the gut connection when it comes to weight loss, who don't address the gut brain and the gut endocrine connection when it comes to things like obesity. And they do experience weight loss as a a battle that they're fighting every single day. And that's not fair. We need to make this conversation more complex and more nuanced so we can make life better and easier for everyone. So one of the really hot topics right now are these drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy, and they are really interesting, these drugs that stimulate GLP-1 receptors, okay? And they work in a variety of ways. One of them is by actually reducing the feeling of hunger. Another is by just changing the way that we respond to blood sugar, blood glucose, so they impact our insulin sensitivity. Okay, well... New research coming out, done by a variety of research groups, but including this company Pendulum that sells a product that includes Ackermansia mucinophilia, which is a probiotic. This research shows that this gut bacteria Acromansia actually produces these compounds that are just like these drugs ozempic. So when you have acromantia in your gut, and Acromansia is considered a keystone species of the gut microbiome, when you have Acromansia in your gut, you are actually, let's just put it simply, producing your own ozempic. I mean, wow, isn't that amazing? You can save yourself $1,200 a month by just having this onboard microbe that does the work for you. And all you have to do is eat fiber. You eat a diet high in fiber, you have this bacteria in your gut, and suddenly, your insulin response, your glucose sensitivity, your hunger signaling, and your metabolism can change. That is the power of the gut microbiome. And it's very complicated. And it's not as simple as running off to the doctor and getting an injection. But it is actually how our bodies evolved to function. So it's critically important to understand that how our metabolism works, how hungry we get, how frustrated we feel around weight loss, these things are actually impacted by the gut microbiome and by restoring keystone populations that want to live in there, that want to be commensal and symbiotic with us. They want to help us out. We can actually improve our health and make life better and easier for everyone involved. And of course, One of the confounding factors there is that we need a food system that actually supports our ability to eat a high-fiber, nutrient-dense diet. So I'll save that rant for a different episode, and I do have an episode coming out in the coming few weeks about the food system and how important it is that we shift the way that we talk about and take care of and promote foods, but let me just in this moment say that the gut microbiome depends on a nutrient-dense, fiber-rich, whole food diet. Ultra-processed foods are bad for the gut microbiome, right? Low fiber, high sugar, these things are all gonna skew our microbiome towards dysbiosis and pathogenicity. That's not what we want. So if we're trying to restore our health from the inside out and promote a healthy and happy and peaceable microbiome, then we need healthy, high fiber, whole foods, unprocessed that our microbes can really chew on and use to produce healthy compounds for us. But in order to make that possible, we need a food system that promotes and subsidizes those foods so that they're actually within reach of of the average consumer and not just people like me who obsessively make their entire lives about eating healthy. The microbiome, of course, also plays an important role in the immune system, and it's referred to as the third arm of the immune system. One of the things that I learned when I was trying to understand why my daughter had so many food allergies is that certain microbes in the gut, there's one species called Bifidobacterium infantis. This is a critical and keystone species in the gut of infants. That species plays a really important role in a variety of things actually, but for the purposes of this point on immunity, Bifidobacterium infantis helps to train T regulatory cells in the immune system. T reg cells are really cool because they're not just like a yes or a no in the immune system. They actually help to tone immune response. They help the body decide how inflammatory it should go when it's responding to a perceived threat. So you can understand they would play a critical role in the development or protection from allergies and especially food allergies. And there has been some recent research looking at using Bifidobacterium Bifidobacterium infantis as part of a therapeutic approach to resolving food allergies. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's focus on prevention. Having an established colony of Bifidobacterium or B. Infantis in the gut starting at birth is critical to the healthy development of an infant's immune system. It helps the infant respond better to vaccinations. It helps prevent food allergies in the infant. It helps the infant develop a healthy neurological response. B. infantis, unfortunately or fortunately for evolution, has one food that it really, really likes and depends on in order to thrive. And that is human breast milk. And not just breast milk in general, but a compound in human breast milk called HMO or human milk oligosaccharide. HMO is a very specific carbohydrate that B. infantis depends on in order to grow and thrive. Without breast milk, B. infantis can actually starve. And there are some companies working on making synthetic HMOs. I don't know enough about them to really speak to that, but it speaks to the importance of breastfeeding for gut microbiome health and for properly seeding a gut microbiome at birth and during neurodevelopment and immune development. Again, this takes us into the public health conversation. How are we supporting mothers and allowing them to have the time and support and education and resources necessary to breastfeed their infants? I've breastfed three infants, and I'm like a crazy, committed, home birth, natural kind of a gal, even being that person, even being like, there's no way in hell I'm not breastfeeding my babies. I almost gave up all three times. Like straight up, there's always a day where it's so hard that you think, I'm gonna quit, fuck this, it's not worth it, there must be a better way, clearly my body isn't good enough and I'm just gonna go to the store and buy formula. And that's me, that's me, this person who's so hyper, hyper committed to this, I still almost broke down and quit all three times. I say that to say that we need supports in place to support mothers because if this person, This crazy person here who's hyper-obsessed with things like home birth and breastfeeding and natural health, if this person almost quit, then surely the average person who's stressed out, who's exhausted, who just gave birth, who has two other, three other, four other kids at home, who has a job, who's trying to work remote while breastfeeding – Everyone is going to think about quitting or is going to quit at one point or another, and it's a public health concern, right? Breast milk is super important for babies' health, and it's important that we not just, again, speak about that, but also put supports in place to make it accessible for everyone. To that end, I want to just note quickly uh, a little bit more that the microbiome has now been established as playing a role in the development of food allergies and also environmental allergies. So it's important to have a robust and diverse microbiome that trains our immune system to tolerate A variety of exposures, right? When we have many commensal organisms living within us, our immune system understands that that's okay, that it's safe to have a diverse population around us. And when our populations inside of us become sterilized, that leads to a more erratic immune response, which can lead to things like food allergies and environmental allergies. So Looking ahead right now, again, we're kind of establishing this relationship in the research. But where the research is going is to developing treatments for things like food allergies, using targeted probiotics as part of the therapy. Uh, I personally have to admit that I'm very excited about that because I do have a child with food allergies and I have some sensitivities, but I'm not so much concerned about sensitivities when it comes to this conversation. What I'm concerned about is anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis has increased tenfold uh, over the last few years. It's incredibly dangerous and life-threatening. One of my good friends, Aisha Faines, actually passed away from an anaphylactic attack, and she was someone who had food allergies her entire life. She obviously felt that she knew how to manage them, as many people with food allergies do. It really only takes one bad exposure, sometimes from an unknown source, and an EpiPen is not always enough, so... As a society, it's my goal that we end anaphylaxis, and the key to ending anaphylaxis is understanding the role that the gut microbiome is playing in the development and severity of food allergies and other allergies. Like, you can have an anaphylactic response to to a bee sting, you know? Okay. Slowing it down, taking a little pause, I hope that I've kind of established for everyone listening the role that the gut microbiome is playing in health and disease. Once again, many things can throw off the gut microbiome. It can be prolonged stress. It can be a low fiber diet, which everyone's diet in the West is low fiber compared to what it would have been evolutionarily speaking. It can be a prolonged infection. COVID-19 is known to disrupt the microbiome and to linger in the gut microbiome. It can be antibiotic overuse, and it can also be environmental exposures and environmental pollutions, things like flame retardants, things like microplastics. These things are all disrupting our gut microbiome. Once we have this disruption, we end up with a gut microbiome that is not calm and diverse and robust and training a healthy, robust immune response. It becomes dysbiotic. It becomes pathogenic. It becomes erratic. Sometimes it's a lack of certain microbes. Other times it's an overabundance of other microbes, maybe an overabundance of a fungus like candida albicans. Whether it's an overabundance or a lack or some combination of the two, this then leads to things like chronic inflammation, nutrient deficiencies, and barrier dysfunction. And all of those things make us more susceptible to illness and also push us towards a state of chronic illness. So the microbiome is playing a constant role in our health or disease And things like antibiotic overuse are really important to address. You know, I'm personally passionate about that because my own antibiotic exposure is what led me to get interested in this topic, not for any fun reasons, but here I am and now I'm very excited about it. But also the diet, right? Okay, so public health, I'm a public health person, I'm a nutrition person, So much of what we hear is like, again, calories in, calories out, eat less, move more, you know, 80, 20, treat yourself like you're not yourself. Grab a Snickers. Okay. Yes, no one's perfect. Yes, treat yourself. I'm a baker, by the way. I love to bake. And in an ideal world, probably none of us would ever eat any sugar, but It's all good, you know, once in a while, mix it up. If you're healthy and robust, that's totally fine. I've had periods of my life where I've eaten zero sugar for years at a time because I just wasn't in a state where that was a thing that my body could tolerate. That's not my life right now. I'm very grateful for that, but it's important to address the fact that non-nutritive foods can be deeply harmful when you're already in a fragile state. Nutrition plays such an important role in the development, protection, and sustenance of the gut microbiome. It is considered a modifiable risk factor, probably the most important modifiable risk factor, at least if you aren't counting, let's say, not constantly using antibiotics, which let me just say, I can't recommend enough not constantly consuming antibiotics. If you have any questions about that, feel free to drop a comment below or to reach out to me directly, but chronic exposure to broad-spectrum antibiotics is deeply problematic and dangerous and is leading to the development of superbugs that threaten our entire society. But if you're looking for a modifiable risk factor that you can really wrap your hands around and take charge of today, it is your diet. Your diet is playing the most important role. In your gut microbiome. And I'm referencing here a review paper written by Lee Frame and co authors. Lee is at GW University. Uh, she's the director of the Integrative Medicine Program, and she's deeply interested and in currently conducting multiple research projects on the gut microbiome the role that uh, nutrition plays in health and disease. And um, I'm a big fan of her work. And so I wanted to just briefly touch on this paper that she put together. She did a review examining all the literature that talked about the interaction between diet and the gut microbiome. And once again, in this paper, they established that the gut microbiome actually synthesizes some nutrients, B1, B2, B6, B9, B12, It can also produce vitamin K. But on top of that, micronutrients can be absorbed in the body in different amounts depending on the composition of the gut microbiome. So some nutrients whose absorption and utilization are impacted by the composition of the gut gut microbiome are things like iron, vitamin K, vitamin D, and vitamin A. I think that that's incredibly important to acknowledge because these are all, uh, nutrients that any kind of deficiency in them can be critically important and detrimental to the health. So something like an iron deficiency can be the difference between developing a disease or not. So knowing that the composition of your gut microbiome can influence the way your body absorbs and utilizes iron is critically important. I want to read this, uh, extended quote from the paper. They wrote, a bidirectional relationship between micronutrients and the gut microbiome is beginning to emerge. Diet and nutrition affect the composition of the gut microbiome. This in turn affects a wide array of metabolic, hormonal, and neurological processes that influence our health and disease. I love that quote because it really just kind of sums it up, you know? The gut and the brain and the gut and the organs and the body have a constant bi-directional relationship. And what's the number one thing we can do to influence the health of our gut microbiome? Improve the health of our diet. Make it a nutrient-rich, polyphenol-rich, fiber-rich, whole food, home-cooked, and my own personal bias would say seasonal, locally grown, You know, farmer-informed, go meet the person who grows your food, shake their hand... Making those changes to the diet, eating less food that comes from plastic, from a package, from a box, and more food that comes from your friends, your farmer, your fields. That's going to be the most important change that you can make starting out when you want to make changes to your gut microbiome. Finally, to kind of bring this um, intro conversation to the gut microbiome home, I want to just double down on my belief that the gut microbiome is a critical topic in public health. I think that the way that we talk about the microbiome uh, right now, generally speaking, certainly across social media, is very much through an individualistic lens, right? It's like, oh my gosh, your gut microbiome is so important, like take this probiotic. And I'm not saying don't take the probiotic. For the record, there's two products that I currently take every single day. I take seed probiotic, which is a multi-strain probiotic in a patented capsule designed to get deeper into the digestive process. It also contains prebiotics, which is an important food source for the bacteria. And I also take Armra, which is a bovine colostrum product. This may shock people that know me because I've been a dairy-free girly for years, but I was doing reading on how to make my gut microbiome more resilient. And I realized that there are certain keystone species in the gut that actually depend on compounds in colostrum for food. And I have not consumed colostrum since I was three years old. And yes, I did breastfeed until I was three years old, but it wasn't enough to prevent my gut dysbiosis due to antibiotic overuse. So I currently take seed probiotic every day and armor colostrum every day. And those two products I believe have totally transformed the sustainability of my health and my gut. I no longer obsess over changing different probiotics. I'm no longer tweaking my supplement routine. I've actually dropped every other supplement. Except for those two things. So, I say that to say that really nourishing the gut microbiome and making that community sustainable and feeding those microbes what they need to thrive is the number one thing you can do to set the tone. And then, eating a healthy, nourishing diet on top of that gets the ball rolling and can really improve all health outcomes. I mean, for me, just off the top of my head, I no longer have depression and anxiety. I'm no longer obese. I do not battle my weight. I'm not covered in skin rashes. These are all things that I have dealt with throughout the course of my life as a downstream impact of taking antibiotics and destroying the gut microbiome. And just through diet and probiotic therapies and a colostrum supplement, I've been able to completely reverse those things. So that is the power of the gut microbiome and access to adequate nutrition and the right supplements. Again, just ending this with a public health conversation. I wanna talk about a little bit of uh, Dr. Douglas's work. She has a whole section, like I mentioned earlier, in her microbiome book about the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's really important in these kinds of messy conversations about pandemics that we do acknowledge the role of the gut microbiome, that it's not just about face masks and gloves, although of course, sometimes those can be beneficial and useful. It's also about making sure that our gut microbiome Our nasal microbiome and our oral microbiome are resilient, robust, and diverse enough to protect us from external threats. She writes in her book, gut microbiomes can be protective against infectious respiratory disease. When mice are administered antibiotics that deplete the gut microbiome, they become very susceptible to influenza virus. So once again, in a mouse model, when you give them antibiotics and deplete their gut microbiomes, they become more susceptible To the flu. This is in a mouse model. However, there are obvious implications for other animals and for the human animal as well. She goes on, the principal predictors of COVID-19 disease severity include obesity, type 2 diabetes, and hypertension. And all of these conditions are associated with dysbiosis in the gut microbiome. The microbiome of patients with severe COVID-19 is dysbiotic. Well-designed trials are providing evidence that probiotics may reduce the severity of disease symptoms of COVID-19-infected individuals. A little bit of a mic drop there. I also want to just very briefly before I wrap up, and if you're watching the video of this, you can see that I'm holding this book. It's called The Gut Microbiome in Health and Disease. And yes, it is a textbook. And yes, it was required reading for one of my classes at Georgetown Medical School. Nothing has ever thrilled me more than realizing that I was required to own a textbook that goes deeply into the details of the role that the gut microbiome is playing in human health and disease. When I was a 19-year-old single teen mom of a chronically ill child with a anaphylactic food allergies, I dreamed of a world where we would acknowledge the role of the gut microbiome in human health and disease. I would have sobbed knowing that this book would one day exist. And if you could have told me that I would one day be required to own this book because I would be sitting in that classroom studying this very thing that could help my daughter and millions of people around the world heal their bodies... I would have cried, and I have cried while thinking about it. So I bring this book. Um, Of course, feel free. If you want to really geek out on this topic, I'm going to put links below the show for all the books that I recommended and the articles that I referenced today. If you really want to go deep, feel free to get this book. It's incredible. I've gone through it and done a lot of highlighting. But even if you don't want to own the textbook, just knowing that such a textbook exists gives me so much hope because I believe that the future of health will involve conversations with doctors about what you eat, how you poop, and how you feel and what kind of environmental exposures you've had and whether or not you had a prolonged illness and what your stress levels have been like and how your hormonal systems are functioning. All of this is critically important to the health of your gut microbiome. And all of this depends on a healthy public health system that supports a nutrient-dense, nourishing, easy access to healthy foods, the kind of a society that focuses on prevention and tries to prevent illnesses, neurodegenerative illnesses, illnesses of inflammation, chronic illnesses, we could and we can live in a society that prioritizes prevention and also uses this knowledge to create new therapies that can treat these diseases after they're created, after they manifest. I believe in that society. I am here fighting for that society. My entire life is about building that society. And I hope that after listening to this episode, you feel inspired to read some of these books, Again, if you want to reach out to me for more resources, I'm more than happy to connect. Go ahead, there's links below for all kinds of ways to reach out and contact me. I would love to hear from you. But I hope that this episode gave you some kind of introduction into the role that the gut microbiome is playing in health and disease. And I hope in my next few episodes, which are going to be, again, about the food system and also about the kombucha industry, that you'll learn a bit more about about how all of these topics are connected and how we cannot separate human health from societal health, from animal health, environmental health, and planetary health. They are all connected. And where they most intimately connect is at the microbiological level. So thank you so much once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. I'm Marion. It's been my pleasure to speak with you today about the gut microbiome. Please find the links in the show notes to direct you to my website and all of the resources that we discussed today. This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting. Thank you again for